0: RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log.
1: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 340, rejoined.
2: Welcome to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast.
0: I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we look inside ourselves to ask how we really feel about an episode of Star Trek. Then we pick it apart for the morals, meanings, and messages, and see if the whole thing stands the test of time. This week,
2: Rejoined, in which Jadzia Dax is rejoined with her ex-wife, who is in the body of a different woman from way back when Dax was in the body that was not Jadzia. Got it? Good. So we'll get to the details in a moment, but I'd like to tell you how we can join our ongoing conversation about Star Trek. So if you'd like to contact us, please isolate your subspace carrier waves for the following contact frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is roddenberry.com, and our show website, including Discovered Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. But before we get to the main topic, when John isn't practicing pulling latinum out of my very <laughs> latinum-stuffed earlobes, he has banked up an entire library of trivia to offer all of you. But it's not magic. It's science.
0: <laughs> it's it's real. It's really happening. You can measure it. You can copy and paste it. Here we go. Trivia for this week's episode rejoined. Now, the story is by Rene Echeverria, and the teleplay is credited to Ronald D. Moore and Rene Echeverria. Of course, we've seen so much work from both of them, Renee and Ron, over the course of DS9, and it's no surprise to see their names here either. So rather than talk about them specifically as we do week to week, I'd uh, like to instead focus a little bit on the TV landscape at the time that this episode came out. Now, Star Trek tends to break ground, or at the very least, Star Trek has put into popular fiction some great moments that may have been overlooked in other places. Yes, the first interracial kiss occurred on TV before TOS's Plato's Stepchildren, but the Kirkuhura kiss in that episode became a part of the pop culture fabric. In this episode, we have a same-sex kiss that, at the time, wasn't the first on TV, but still was relatively early and is still incredibly well-known today. Prior to this episode airing in October 1995, L.A. Law had broken this ground in 1991 with a kiss between Amanda Donahoe and Michelle Green, Picket Fences and Roseanne also followed with same-sex kisses that generated publicity and some backlash. Interestingly, it was an episode of The Real World in 1994 in which Pedro Zamora exchanged vows with Sean Sasser and then a kiss, in which wide TV audiences saw for the first time two men and a relationship kissing in a, well, a real-world setting. I'm only bringing up those and not the many that followed around the same time to set the stage a little for where we were when this episode aired. Now, interestingly, the story had existed for a little while. Michael Pillar had the concept of joined trills having longstanding rules about how they could behave so as not to disrupt the rest of trill society. But it was Ronald Moore who had the inspiration to cast Dax's love interest with a woman rather than a man – in order to give the episode much more depth and relevance. Now, this episode was directed by Avery Brooks, so we're right in the middle of Avery's DS9 directorial contributions. We most recently discussed his work on Improbable Cause toward the end of Season 2, and he's got four more episodes to go. Hey, let's talk about guest stars. Well, we welcome back Kenneth Marshall as Michael Eddington again. We have James Noah playing one of the Trill's scientists, Hannah Pren. James's professional acting roles go back to the late 50s, where he turned up in a small role on an episode of Ozzie and Harriet. Then he pretty much worked consistently in front of the cameras ever since. He has some recurring roles on Law and & Order and NYPD Blue, in addition to his guest spots on Seinfeld, The Practice, and others. We'll see him one more time in a guest spot on Voyager. Tim Ryan plays another trill scientist, Bejal Otner. Now, in addition to many guest and recurring TV roles, he made numerous appearances on China Beach just a few years before we see him here on DS9. And, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that he did have a guest spot on The Love Boat. Of course, as our lead trill scientist, we welcome Susanna Thompson, She's one of those actors who, once she appears on a show, the producers seem to keep calling her back for more. That's not just true on Star Trek, but it seems to be especially true on Star Trek. We saw her twice on The Next Generation, in The Next Phase, then again in Frame of Mind. Now, this might be her only DS9 appearance, but buckle up, because we will see her again four more times when she appears as the Borg Queen in Voyager. May I jump in here, John, for one second? Absolutely. Because the most recent credit
2: that I've seen her on is the CW's Arrow when she played Moira Queen, mm-hmm. the mother of Oliver Queen, in the first, I believe, two seasons before something happened to her character. And I thought she was, she was fantastic in that role. And when I finally revisited this episode for this particular podcast, I was... Star Trek, I was like, that was her? Oh... <laughs> okay
0: Mm. great she's that good
2: and that attractive of which a point i will be making specific mention of later on
0: very good
1: i've picked out a few special tracks for this episode initiate mission log computer mixtape program number 47 now playing i have reached for a bright star above but the trill of it all to me seems so small when compared to the trill of your love
0: Prologue. Jadzia is playing around in Quarks, showing off her mad sleight of hand skills when she gets a call from Cisco that he's got some news for her. A Trill scientific team is coming to the station to do some work on artificial wormholes. But on that team is Dr. Lenara Khan. For some reason, that name is a little unsettling. Cisco even says Jadzia can take leave, but no, it's been a long time. She's a pro, she's not going anywhere. There to greet the Trill team are Kira, Dax, and Worf. First off is Dr. Hanor Pren. Then there's Dr. Khan and her brother, Dr. Bejel Otner. Khan and Dax have a very chilly handshake, and when Kira asks how Dax knows her, Dax says that Khan used to be her wife. Act One: A little explanation is what Cork needs. Us two. When the Dax symbiont was in Torias and the Khan symbiont was in a host named Nilani, they were married. Torias was killed in an accident and the Dax symbiont made its way eventually to Jadzia. Nilani died and Khan was joined with Lenara, so, ex spouses. So, what if they got back together? Bashir knows a thing or two about Trill traditions. Even if they wanted to, they can't. It's not a law per se, but it breaks all kinds of societal norms. If they reassociated, they would be exiled, and when the host died, the symbionts would die too. Kinda harsh, but that's the way the worm wiggles. The Trill Science team and the DS9 staff get together for a reception, and Jedzia says she's totally cool and it's not weird at all. But it's weird. I mean, sure, Dax and Khan sort of joke to each other about how they could fight or throw themselves at each other, especially since it's clear everyone in the room is just staring at them. They cordially carry on, but from across the room, maybe there are some lingering feelings. Act 2. Aboard the Defiant, the science teams are making their preparations for all the science to happen when they go off to do science. There is a moment in all of this when Dax and Khan are left by themselves on the bridge, and very quickly the conversation gets personal. It's a bit of regret and apology, mixed with sweetness and sadness, on the parts of them that are still Tarias and Nalani. Jadzia, speaking for Tarias, says he was foolish to take a flight in a shuttle that wasn't ready. Lenara, clearly feeling something of Nalani, looks a bit wistful as she acknowledges the apology. Jadzia has an idea. How about Lenara joining her and some friends? Well, just one friend, Julian, for dinner tonight. Cut to Jadzia asking Julian to please cancel whatever plans he has so he can join her for dinner. At dinner at Quark's, Saul smiles in good times, except for Julian, who looks bored out of his mind. Once he leaves, that just gives more time for discovering that they really do have a lot in common, and Jadzia gently holds Lenara's hand. Who's watching from another part of the bar, though? One of the other Trill, Dr. Pren. Act 3. The mission is now underway, with Worf in command of the Defiant and the science team doing their thing to create an artificial wormhole. The first attempt is successful, at least temporarily. Everyone is pleased. Jadzia even wraps an arm around Lenara, which prompts Dr. Prynne to give a look to Dr. Otner, Lenara's brother, one of those, do you see what I'm seeing moments? And I don't mean the wormhole. Later on DS9, Otner confronts his sister about what he saw. He doesn't want to believe it, and he asks her to reassure him that there's nothing going on. She says as much, but then quickly goes to Dax's quarters to tell her what happened. The two discuss how there's nothing going on. But maybe they shouldn't see each other. But Nilani maybe hasn't gotten over Tarias. And Tarias has missed Nalani terribly. They embrace. They kiss. Lenara says she should go. Act 4. Dax tells Sisko what's up, and he's very pragmatic about this, reminding his friend about her responsibility as a joined Trill. She says she knows. And she's aware of the consequences, and she's also had the experience of seven lifetimes to tell her what she wants. No matter what, Sisko says he will always have her back. Aboard Defiant, time for the next wormhole experiment. It's going just as planned, until it doesn't. The wormhole collapses and explodes after the Defiant launches a probe through it. That explosion rocks the ship, causing a plasma leak in engineering... Just where Eddington and Lenara are stationed. Arriving on the scene, it doesn't look good. Both are injured, and the only way Jadzia can get to Lenara is by enabling a temporary force field, allowing her to walk down and drag Lenara to safety while they vent the engine room. Behind the bulkhead, the two emotionally embrace and they promise they'll never lose each other again. Act 5. On DS9, Lenara is recovering. Jadzia stops by with a proposal. What if Lenara stayed there, with her, to continue to work on her wormhole experiment? Yes, it would mean exile, and yes, Lenara's brother has already insisted that she return to the Trill homeworld and forget about Dax. Naturally, Dax says that how they feel about each other is the only thing that matters. Lenara has so much to consider, though. She's not impulsive like Curzon, or Torias, or possibly Jedzia. Maybe she can go back home for a while and think it over. Then she can come back to DS9 another time. Tearfully, Jadzia says she knows she won't come back if she leaves tomorrow. The next day, Worf escorts Doctors Pryn and Otner to the airlock. Jadzia watches from an upper deck of the promenade. A moment later, Dr. Khan appears, and before she steps through the lock to her shuttle, she looks up and just happens to catch the pained look in Jadzia's eye. Damn it, Star Trek, stop making my eyes water!' The end.
2: Well done, John. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. And you know what? One of these days, soon, hopefully, mm-hmm. we're going to get a little bit of a softball episode. So we're not <laughs> pained <laughs> with such heavy content. Oh, my gosh. Uh, uh,
0: yeah. Uh, we will. We will. Yeah. I know. I would, yes, we have a softball coming up. Not, not right away, but we have a softball coming up. A couple of them. Mm, indeed. It'll be fun. Yeah. Not saying they'll be short. <laughs> they will be softball <laughs> but fun yeah hey uh, so let, let's pick apart this a little bit um, that opening trick with the egg uh, so I love how Quark is trying to figure it out and he says well she probably beamed the egg from a transporter directly into her mouth it, it's so I mean, it's just a little throwaway bit but I love how that in the 24th century what constitutes a trick and our ability to rationalize it this is very different from now yeah. you know and as
2: good as as good as uh Alexander Siddig was in that uh I, I think that Armin Schirmerman, has just kind of like this gawky look that he had on his face the whole trying to decipher what was going on yes it's exactly what you want to see with somebody who's trying to figure out a magic trick either now or 300 years from now
0: yes yeah i i don't know if i've said it in precisely these terms on this show before. I probably have, but I'll say it again. Um, you know, when I go back and watch the original series, um, it's always a revelation to just watch D. Kelly, even if he's not the focus of the scene, you see the gears always turning in his head. He he is always acting by reacting. And Armin Shimmerman does the same thing in DS9. Now, they give him a lot of screen time. They give him a lot of great lines and a lot of funny lines. But as you just pointed out, it's just the look on his face. You see what's going on in his head, and he's just wonderful, no matter what they give him. By the way, with that trick, okay, so Jadzia does the trick, and then right with the latinum, and then right away, Court grabs it, puts it in his pocket. Right mm-hmm. now, the second time when Bashir does it, Bashir keeps it. <laughs> That's, what, what's up with that? Well, it's to pay <laughs> I mean, for the
2: lessons. And he's got to pay okay. for the magic lessons.
0: Okay, I got it. All right, very good. There are a couple of directorial things I'm going to point out, and one in particular here is that's did it jar you at all? That was just an odd shot of Jadzia coming into ops. So, right when she leaves Quarks, Mm -hmm. she gets the call from Cisco, and it's this weird, like, uh, uh, this sort of smashed focus thing where you've got, uh, like, a barrier in front, you've got somebody at a console in the midground, and then you've got Jadzia coming up the lift in the background. But the way it's moving and the camera is craning up a little bit, it just seems like, why Why are we doing this with this uh, uh, this lack of depth of field? It was a very odd choice. There were a couple um, of odd shots in this episode. Yes. yes. Yeah. And... I think we'll point out a few of them uh, unless there's any one that you want to bring up right now.
2: No, no, not in, in particular, okay. but yeah, you're right. There was, it's either one of two things. Either there could have been an edit in there. There could have been a pickup shot really fast that they needed to do some type of transitional shot, something like this when they're doing these types of episodes so quickly and they need to like force something in. They're like, oh, we forgot to do this kind of transitional shot. They just throw that in there and don't really block it well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. Strange. And it, it's especially strange. uh, I mean, everybody knows that I'm a big fan of Marvin Rush um, and his cinematography, uh, but usually, you know, there's not a whole lot of room to play around on a TV set. And especially when you have the director on TV, because the director is different every week. um, Obviously they, they repeat sometimes, but not back to back. Um, That director is being hired to match a style, Mm -hmm. not, not to come in and be creative. And there are some creative choices here that I thought were just a little little out of step, a little weird. Well, that's pinned on probably. Avery
2: because Avery directed this one, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I wonder if it was him or if I wonder if it was the DP just saying, like, hey, I have this idea. Let's use this really weird lens yeah. <laughs> and make this bes- Sure, go for it. Great, great moment of Worf talking about what Klingons dream about.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he is the master of the icebreaker
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: in social settings I was just I was curious to see If anyone was going to ask him A knock knock joke Yeah right <laughs> huh. Knock knock Who's there You know Calus. Calus who Calus that will bring Honor to the Empire For the next 3,000 years And will bathe in the blood Of all of your enemies And blah blah I'm like, Okay yeah, Okay I get it
0: uh, Yeah that one always kills at Klingon parties. Oh, totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> hey, and uh, I have to point out food. A couple of points in here uh, to point out food. Uh, there is food at the reception. Now, we didn't really see it. Um, we, we just got a tiny, like a very dark shot of scooping something onto a plate, but they describe it. We have a call back to Hasparat, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's moba fruit, and then there's uh, veklava, which I assume is like baklava, but has ridges on its nose. That's what I was that, thinking. Okay, all right. That's exactly what I was thinking. I
2: really wanted to see a a close up of the Veklava, so that is it, or is it Baklava that's blessed by Vedics?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, see, that's very good. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I was hoping that we would get much more information about Maybe Beklava.
2: Veklava is baklava. that's kind of Bajoran kosher.
0: Oh, there you go. Okay, yeah. You know, I like that idea. It's a very like religious it. type of preparation. <laughs> <laughs> and now, the later food scene, we we have the dinner table at Quark's, uh between Jadzia and Lenara, and it, it looked like uh, maybe bread, uh, some kind of like a meatloaf, thing there, and then uh, some red cabbage and green cabbage. I, I like all the cabbages, mm-hmm. so I was glad. And these are all foods that hold up pretty well on set. Right, they don't wilt, wilt with the lights, and they don't... Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Cabbage, pretty robust. You don't want to put, like, a, like a Boston bib lettuce on a plate under hot lights. You're just asking for trouble right there.
2: You know? So here's an interesting thing, though. Talking about that, the, the food over time will wilt, and you know, kind of get limp. But makeup and hair and all that kind of stuff, you know, under all those lights, I mean, those are all getting touched up. Why not the food?
0: Oh, and they do. Okay. They, they do touch up the food. Now, it, it might, I mean, typically when you call last looks right before a shot, uh, it's time for a hair and makeup to swoop in, make sure everything looks good. But you probably also have the prop master standing by as well going, oh, they just called last looks. Let's, uh, let's fluff up that green cabbage a little bit. Let's mm. maybe uh, give a little spritz and bring it back to life here. You know, you know what would so, never
2: wilt, though? If Odo no, was
0: not. salad, it would never wilt. It would ne- you're right. Yes. Oh, that that would be a good party trick, too. I right? <laughs> like that. Hey, uh, something that was revealed in that moment. Uh, Curzon set fire to the Barrows Inn in the Rigel system a- as part of a bet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I- how did that bet go? <laughs> I mean, I'm just picturing somebody saying, hey, Curzon, I bet you won't set this place on fire. Oh, yeah, watch me. Boom. <laughs> like exactly that's pretty much it okay Mm -hmm. all right
2: i think that's as simple as that i think that if you're going to throw something at curzon he's gonna be like path of least resistance you said it i'll do it now pay up yeah
0: yeah he was a kid who like somebody else to say hey i'll give you five bucks to do this thing curzon you just you save five bucks (laughs) you just like go do the thing and he'll do it i double dog dare you (laughs) he's in he's a double dog dare Oh, oh, and there was a great line. Uh, uh, there was an exception to every rule, and he usually went out of his way to find it. That's Jed Zia describing Curzon. I mean, that's I, fabulous. I
2: know that in Facets we got a lot more Curzon, and it was played mm-hmm. brilliantly by Renee. Yes, and I wanted to see so much more like Curzon in flashbacks. And I'm not saying that we won't. I just don't know. But Curzon, man, he seems like so interesting. I mean, yeah. This isn't his show. This is Tyrion's show. But what what would the Dax Symbiote be, or at least who would Jadzia be without Curzon?
0: Right, right. Yeah, I, no, totally. You you have to have him. You have to have his personality. Um, I I think th- that line, by the way, it sounds like something out of a Mark Twain book. Uh, that just it sounds. And and actually, Curzon kind of sounds like a Mark Twain character, anyway. Oh yeah. So I, I yeah. love the. He's a guy that would say. How do you ruin a perfectly
2: good stroll? Oh, no. He goes, golf is how you ruin a perfectly good stroll.
0: Right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh, and I have to point out, so we, we do talk a little bit about technical things here. Um, in a show overall that it's just full of good design and great effects. and I you know this episode in particular, I thought the wormhole effects were very good, mm-hmm. and overall ds9 just the effects are very good and the design is excellent. I love more and more that we get to see the defiant. It's just a nice looking interior design on that. The walking down the force field bit, I, I think that is a low point. Did not care for that effect, or really that contrivance, <laughs> or the
2: or the camera angle too. The whole thing was Ooh, just kind of yeah. a. I'm I'm sure it sounded great on paper. Yeah, and it probably sounded great in blocking, but it just didn't really come together in in execution. Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And maybe when they were um, that
2: daily, they're like, "Well, um, we're already behind, so you know, cut it, print it, move on." Yeah. You know. Yeah,
0: I, that that could very well have been it. Yeah. Yeah. And let's uh, let's mention the kiss here. Um, I, I don't want to talk about the character stuff necessarily, as we'll get into the, the meaning and the character journey and all of that in our next segment. Um, but I liked reading a bit that Avery Brooks had banned press from coming in and covering while they were working on the episode and, and working on that scene in particular. He wanted to treat the moment with care uh, for the story and for the actor's. And, and I think what he got out of that moment was wonderful. This is full of heart and full of honesty. So well done, because it might sound like I was just sort of taking some shots at Avery's directing decisions. Um, not necessarily the case here, although, again, some questionable things here. But I think that moment, that scene, and just as far as what the actors brought to it and the way it was handled, the way the, the context and the script and in the show overall, just super well done.
2: Yeah and I think that's it was smart of him to do that and to kind of keep that set uh sanitized from media because mm-hmm. the actors or the actresses uh in this case they had to they had to feel comfortable in executing that particular scene that scene is the scene of this episode yeah, yeah. I mean the, the entire dis- discussion I think at least when this episode happened and the surrounding media that covered it they took that scene out of context we'll get into that yeah. later but yeah yeah. But in order for, uh, for, uh, for Terry and for Susanna to get into the scene to bring the honesty that they needed to bring to that scene, it had to be a clean set
0: mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, John, I had a, a couple of things here, too, I wanted to talk about. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the magneton element <laughs> of the last couple episodes. I mean, think about it. When, when yeah. somebody mentions the word magneton, either the pulse or kind of like the, the force field effect, nothing good happens when magnetons are around.
0: No, stay away from those right. things. So yeah. let's take
2: a look at the last three episodes that we did in Hippocratic Oath, which was episode three
0: mm-hmm.
2: on the on the USS Rubicon. Bashir and O'Brien they detected a magneton pulse on the planet where they beamed down and were captured by Jem'Hadar. Oof! Right,
0: it's a bad day. That was yeah. a bad day. Yeah,
2: from a magneton pulse in mm-hmm. indiscretion. So when when Kira and Deccot were in the runabout, they picked up a magneton signature. And they thought it was from a damaged warp cell, which led them to the planet, which hopefully helped them find the, uh, the, the ship. Um, yeah. but the Revanach. The Revanach, the right, the Revanach. Yeah. And then all a whole cascade of things happened. Yeah. Thanks to locating a magneton pulse. Right. And now in this episode, because the—let me see. And now I have to read this because there's so much technobabble here. So Dr. <laughs> Doctor Lenara Khan utilized a Magneton Pulse in her experiment to create an artificial wormhole while aboard the USS Defiant. So the Magneton Pulse created a feedback loop which destroyed the drone, but not before successfully creating a short-lived wormhole. So yeah, we have something great in the end, but that, that celebration kind of cascaded into Lenara and Jadzia, kind of celebrating that and becoming closer in a kind of now, I wouldn't say it was the catalyst, but it was definitely part of the ramifications of, of them exploring their relationship more closely because they were yeah. they were in the moment of such success and, and such camaraderie and closeness. Right. Oh, and right. then there was also the Graviton wave, which was an issue, and never oh. it's it's never good when a Graviton wave hits the engineering section of the Defiant. Yeah. Like we saw <laughs> in the good. visitor.
0: Not good at all.
2: Um the other thing that I wanted to to address was I always thought that in this episode the the relationship issue with Lenara Khan coming onto the station and Dax's reaction was a little forced in 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 my taste or for Mm. my taste because as soon as they mention Lenara Khan's name as soon as Cisco mentions that he tells Dax you got some time take off leave the station because she's coming here Mm -hmm. and it never really felt like that was earned it was just dropped in there you know Mm. like Mm -hmm. um. Like for instance, uh, like Doctor Bashir. You no know, for for a couple episodes, you know, he's always kind of beating himself up about he became salutatorian of his class and not valedictorian because of the pre-ganglionic fiber, post-ganglionic nerve issue. And then he finally, you know, he met the uh, you know the, the doctor who who beat him out in that test, and and it kind of came as a resolution of that particular thread. But nowhere in the at least as far as I've seen was Doctor Lenara Khan ever mentioned in Dax's back history. So. As soon as you bring up this name, everybody puts so much focus on these two being together, but it doesn't feel like it's earned in the respect that these two are that close and the problems can arise just in their proximity to each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. I mean, it's one of those things where it just feels absolutely like a contrivance of the script. We have to figure out the most dramatic way to slip in this information mm-hmm. and and raise the stakes immediately in our you know two or three minute teaser here. So I, I yeah, I agree. Not, uh, not exactly handled with the most deft hands.
2: And one of the last things I wanted to bring up is I love chemistry uh, with actors. You can tell when chemistry is immediate between actors. It's just in their behavior, the way they look at each other, even though it's scripted that they're supposed to look at each other, the way they just naturally act around each other. And I really think that casting uh, Susanna Thompson as, as Lenara Khan was a, a great choice because for some reason, maybe, and maybe they tested her with Terry a lot, but those two together, um, you know, aside from the fact that they have to do this very uh, intimate scene, they just have great chemistry around each other. But I want to pose something to you and I want to pose something to the audience. Mm-hmm. What if the person that they cast as Lenara Khan wasn't as beautiful as Susanna Thompson is. Mm -hmm. What if they cast somebody who was not attractive, giving the context of what is going on in this episode, because Hollywood has a really, uh, I guess um, a pretty consistent way of casting very beautiful people for beautiful moments. Sure. And it, it lends itself to ease people's perceptions of a scene where good-looking people do beautiful things. It's easier yeah. to accept it. But what if that wasn't the case? Like Ronald D. Moore said, you know, he, he cast her as a woman when she should have had uh, been cast as a man to add to this different layer of complexity. But what if that person just wasn't one of the beautiful people of Hollywood? I don't want to say this insensitively, but, you know, what if this person just wasn't as attractive? Mm-hmm. Then you would be able to see the dynamic between Dax or Tarius finding the true love again in Nalani beyond the veil of superficial attractiveness.
0: Yeah, well, by you asking that, it sort of takes me back to TNG, the outcast, you know, Mm -hmm. when uh, Riker meets and falls in love with a person from a supposedly androgynous planet, Um, but there are uh, people on that planet who sort of lean uh, more feminine or more masculine, and uh, you know they made the choice to cast that entire show with women, where everybody from that planet as women. Um, so then, when we meet the the person who falls in love with Riker, uh, she is already somewhat feminine. And uh, she's a very beautiful actress to begin with. Um, And they sort of, you know, they gave everybody the same sort of androgynous style, like, you know, their haircuts and the clothes are very utilitarian. Uh, But then that raised a casting question that in retrospect, you go, well, should they have cast that role with a man? Mm Mm-hmm. Could they have cast that role with somebody who was maybe not as conventionally pretty, even if you're going to the extent of, you know, doing makeup and trying to do what you can to make them, quote unquote, androgynous looking? Um, But yeah, I I think what you're pointing out raises a really good question. You can also sort of look at it from the position of the producers or writers or or whomever. Uh, Not everybody has a hand in the casting, but just sort of saying, okay, well, What's important is the story, and that people have some buy-in to what's happening here. Are we making it even easier for the audience to have some buy-in by just putting something, putting somebody on screen that they can already go like, "Oh yeah, I, I get it." Of course, they're in love. You know, mm-hmm. oh look, she, she's beautiful and she has this great personality, and of course they get along in all these ways. And, and I think it doesn't hurt that that there's sort of a similarity between the two they, they don't look alike but there is a similarity in features um and there's sort of a, a, a like a, an almost immediate comfort mm-hmm. in seeing them together so yeah these are all good questions and and i i do have to wonder what the casting process was like what, what did they consider and uh who were the ones that didn't make it ultimately
2: and then, of course, they would have to be whoever they cast. And obviously, this in this case, it was Susanna Thompson. They have to be comfortable when they're reading that script and they get to that page where the script says, and now Jadzia and Lenara kiss passionately, mm-hmm. however the script mm-hmm. reads. Not every person in Hollywood who reads a script like that will say, I'm comfortable with that. I have to believe that. You know, it's just mm-hmm. not who they are unless they say that, you know, the job's the job's the job. Yeah,
0: right, right. Yeah, and you you do have to wonder about that. And I, I do know that, yeah, there are people who get scripts who then say like, oh, yeah, I can't do that. That's not for me. Whatever the case may be.
1: Let's keep the tunes going for this one. Wise men say, only trills rush in, but I can't help falling in love with you again.
2: If you'd like to support this show directly, join us at patreon.com slash mission log.
0: You know, Norman, it's been a lot of fun lately uh, to share with our audience the uncensored behind-the-scenes videos of our recording sessions for Mission Log. You and I get a chance to catch up. You and I get a chance to respond to people who are writing to us there. Um, You even had the contest of what artwork to fill your studio with. That was exclusive to our Patreon listeners, which was a lot of fun.
2: What I love about Patreon support, because I've done Patreon support on a variety of different projects and still do, it's a really nice way to support the creators, but it's also a really nice way to be able to to get behind the scenes with the people that you enjoy listening to or enjoy the entertainment or the content that's being provided to you, you know, on a daily or a weekly basis. And that's where this really nice relationship gets to be formed between the creators and the patrons. And I think that's so special because... Many times, much like the uh, the TV shows or the movies that we watch, we don't really have a chance to either discuss our issues or praise the efforts of or just get to know the people that created content that means so much to us. So I think that this is a great platform. Obviously, it has influenced my life with some of the things that have changed in my personal studio for the better. And uh, just being able to meet the people that are very appreciative of our work. And I I find that just very uh, dear to me and and very, very heartening and, and very humbling to be able to do that for people and for have people to to just connect with us in that way
0: yeah well you said it you know it it absolutely warms the heart and it is about the people involved and i'm just going to name a handful who we've been in touch with very recently uh in our chats on uh, patreon so thank you to penny bc michael tricia doug and jason i know i'm i'm barely mentioning, you know, we, we've got a lot of people who follow us on Patreon. These are just a handful who we've been chatting with very recently on the videos. So thank you to you all. And uh, again, that address to support this show directly is patreon.com slash mission log. We do thank you for your support. So, Norman, we said earlier in the show that uh, there were possibly so many ways to go with this, um, so many different avenues to follow when talking about the intended messages, maybe the unintended messages of rejoined. Um, but I think right up front, you know, there, there's something that is very much at the heart of this, which is uh, the idea of legislating personal lives and relationships. Um, so we, we do it on an institutional level. And it's certainly wrong there. Uh, And certainly within the last 50 years, and I'm just sort of picking that arbitrarily because it's Star Trek history, great steps have been made to uh, get those institutions out of the personal lives of people who simply want to uh, love the people that they love. Um, But we also do it on a societal and personal level. and, And it's wrong there, too. Um, and that's what I think is so interesting about this show and the way that they have framed what's going on. Bashir says early, right up front, well, it's not a law, but they would be exiled, Mm -hmm. and they would have to live out their lives that way, knowing that that, that this is what had happened, and then they'll die, and the, the Trill symbionts will die. The point that... Obviously, we are meant to get out of all of this is that there is something truly heartbreaking, and it does break my heart, to see people who can't live their lives as their true selves. We certainly do things like that to an extent. There are things that we don't share with others, but I'm, I'm talking about something bigger, something more profound here. Um I I had a friend in Chicago, and I, I very specifically want to leave out a lot of details here. But uh, a, a friend of mine who I knew through different circles, um, who had a relationship with another man, and uh, they were clearly very happy. They clearly had a lot in common, but they absolutely went to great extent to try to hide this from other people, even our, our very sort of accepting social circles. And uh, part of that fear was, well, if it gets back to my parents or aunt and uncle or, or whatever who has this particular belief or this particular background, we will just be kicked out of the family. We, we will just be ruined. Mm. And the, the phrase of the show, exiled mm-hmm. from, from everything that we know, And I I was just horrified, you know. Um, My position, and I realize it was so much easier said than done, and I really have no ability to put myself specifically into his shoes, but my feeling was, well, why don't you divorce yourself from from these people or places or institutions that tell you that you are wrong Uh, because you're not? you know mm-hmm. and and that's you know that's what i see playing out in this episode is here are people who who are clearly functional who are clearly in the right who clearly have a great capacity for love and compassion and empathy it's not them who are wrong mm-hmm. it's this assumed traditional structure that just says oh yeah that can't work therefore if you try it we're done with you
2: You know, this is a very, very sensitive topic and Mm -hmm. I take, I take, um, great pause and try and formulate what I want to say, because again, I don't want to sound insensitive and I don't want to sound ignorant of, of obviously what is being discussed. And I do 100% agree, John, that, that people who are willing to, you know, to, to share their lives together, to expose who they are in the in the public facing of their lives are taking on great risk if it's considered taboo Mm -hmm. but at the same time though I think that in this episode there are there's a different layer that that Jadzia and Lenara are fearful of and it's not necessarily 100% all about their choice it's about the choice of the symbionts as well who they either are speaking for or are being influenced to speak for. And if it were just up to Jadzia and Lenara and they didn't host symbionts and it was just about their relationship, then I would be absolutely 100% on board with what you're saying. But the Khan symbiont and the Dax symbiont also have rights and also have the, the capacity to be judged by their hosts' decisions i.e. exiled from Trill culture and therefore their host being the last in line of carrying these symbionts to their death. It's not just about two people's decisions. It's about ending the lineage of, at least in Jadzia Dax's uh, symbionts case, seven generations of an alien species and what gives either of them the right to do that without I, mean, I don't know whose consent holds <laughs> holds the authority here because they are joined.
0: Well, well, see, that. that's where I would challenge you, though, and, and I would say that it's not Jadzia or Lenara making a decision. So you have the memories, the emotions, the the experiences, the passion of Nilani and Tarias, and as we know, the symbionts carry that with them as well. So it, it it is this very interesting thing. I mean, I, I think because, well, you or I or any human being could only speak from the experience of being one mind inside one body, um, that there's our, uh, you know, sort of with our human blinders on, everything that they've said about the trill is that all of that sort of gets commingled. It's not like mm-hmm. having another voice in your head. You're simply experiencing those memories. You're experiencing those emotions as part of your own. So I, I see where you're saying, do either of them have a right to condemn the symbiont potentially to death? Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, we, we, we assume that's what will happen, but, I don't think it's either Jadzia or Lenara making that decision solely on their own. The, the, the past, the experience, the emotion is all coming from what happened before them. But coming from two specific Trill. You know, it's not... Two, two, two specific Trill, but two specific Trill who rejoined. No, true. So, no, what I'm what yeah, I'm saying yeah. are two specific
2: yeah. uh I should say two specific symbionts emotions. In this case yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's Tarias and Nalani. You know, it's not yeah. like Curzon saying, "Sure, I yeah. don't want to move," you know, <laughs> or I, I don't know who the other hosts were for for the con symbiont. but that's that brings up the whole issue with with uh with Lenar saying like, "I wish I had a Curzon in me so that I could be yeah. more impulsive." So, I think the difficult thing to kind of separate here is where the trill influence holds sway over the decision-making process. Because for me, I want people to go out and be happy and live their lives. And if there are consequences, there are consequences. But the thing is, is that it's better to live a happier life facing the consequences than living unhappy, still facing consequences, right? The consequence is still there, right? You might as well make a better life for yourself to do that and challenge that. But in this case it's because of what the trill symbiote represents. It represents the the it represents immortality in a sense, right? That symbiote yeah. can go yeah. on and on and on and on and on. But if one person, not one person, but if the collective choice is made to end that symbiont's lineage, then that immortality, that gift of immortality is gone. Is that the consequence that we're talking about?
0: Yes. Simply that consequence that the, uh, that the, the symbiont dies. And I don't mean that, you know, simply like that. Oh, that's all that happens is that that part of that being dies. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know i I think what is so worrisome here uh not you know i 'm not going to lose sleep over it but but i I think what 's sort of strange about this uh corner that they 've painted themselves into with uh with the trill having this rule is that you know this is a a general societal rule that everybody has bought in on. Everybody has decided, okay, we'll, we'll agree with that. As hard as it is, as awful it is, but we will put our priorities on the symbiont. We will always defer to what is best for the symbiont. First of all, I question if that really is the best way to structure everything that you do on your home world, which, by the way, is called Trill because they just ran out of names. Mm. You know, is it truly right, or is that, again, undue influence from the symbiont just to say, oh, yeah, everything has to be about us. Everything has to be about our protection. Um, The point of... They even kind of describe it in the episode, is that, you know, the the point of that trill carrying on is to carry on with experience, to carry on with, with their knowledge and all of this, but they actually say in there... Uh, I believe it's uh, Julian who who says that they have to let go of parents, siblings, children, and even spouses. And I would ask myself, well, you're saying the point of having these multiple lifetimes is to have experience, to have the breadth of possible experience. And yet you're starting out by saying, oh, but every lifetime you're going to get rid of all these things that actually give life meaning i would argue having parents and siblings and children and spouses and love these are the things that actually give meaning back to your very existence so I, I i think they've they've created this conundrum for themselves where they're putting this high value on all of this but at the same time they're saying okay but we're going to take away all these possibly wonderful things for you to have to me not being trill, being an outsider, just a single brain and a single body from Earth, I would look at that and say well that 's marvelous. You could actually go back and and fall in love with that mind that 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 spirit that experience that you fell in love with before and live another lifetime with them that 's incredible. Imagine what you could accomplish
2: you know, i 'm really glad that you brought this up because there 's a there's something I want to discuss later on about uh, another fandom of mine that I love that carries uh, the same tradition and tackles the same issue, and that's Highlander, because you mm. know we're talking about mm-hmm. immortality. And yeah. uh, the interesting thing about the trail here, uh, when it when it comes to dealing with these larger issues, you know, with making sure that you're you're savoring all of these gifts that are being given to you—children, spouses, lovers, friends, memories—these are all. I guess we're looking at it from kind of like a single timeline, a single life and a, a very singular thread moving forward. Rarely, if ever, do beings like ourselves have a chance, have a truly second chance at things, especially when it comes to what happened to Tarius because he died. The Taraius, you know, he, he was blown up, you know, mm-hmm. in that space shuttle um, or the shuttle accident. And Delaney never had that second chance until now. Yeah, right. So in our lifetimes, if something happens and and something, you know, kind of like an accident that's terminal happens to somebody, that's it. Whoever, you know, not to sound insensitive, but I think I think it's worth bringing up what happened to Kobe Bryant. You know, Kobe Mm. has had everything in front of him and his daughter. They don't have that second chance. They don't have a trill symbiont in them that they can extract and put into another Mm. body to continue on. But if that happened and he met his wife again they have that second chance but it's artificial it's an artificial second chance that's not supposed to happen that's the whole problem with what's happening between jadzia and lenara that's not supposed to happen to
0: their lifetime they were supposed to right move. but 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 not not supposed to happen according to whom that that's where i have a problem with this according that, to the why, society right right and what i say is well Forget your society that tells me what I can and can't do and who I can and can't be in love with. And that's why I, you know, had uh, such a strong reaction to my friend in Chicago who was really, really torn up about this and really in pain about this. And I'm like, look, I I, I get that right now this is a horrible thing to have to navigate. Where are you in five years? Where are you in ten years? Are you still not able to be who you are and live the life that you want to live? Because you're worried what somebody else is going to say about it.
2: Well, I think, yeah. I think that in this case, at least in the context of this episode, it's not that they're telling anyone who they're allowed to love. They loved each other before, and it didn't work out. So the people that are inhabiting those, those personalities now are living different lives, albeit with the memories of the Trill symbiont that's in them. They have those memories, for sure. But Jadzia is a different person than Tarius was. And, and, uh, and, uh, Lenara is a different person than Nalani was. Tarias and Nalani had their chance and now they're influencing these two other people and jeopardizing their chances at other lives. So it's kind of like what Benjamin said. He's like, are you going to give up your entire career, Starfleet and exile from the Trill culture because of what somebody else in this Trill host body wants to do? Yeah, what?
0: but who's to say that that's the best life for Janzia?
2: Well, that's... I mean,
0: yeah, sure, it's a great career, mm-hmm. and and she's got all. The, but but who's to say that that truly is the best life? When here's this opportunity for love. That's the great question, that's what, that's, <laughs> and, and that's that's why <laughs> yeah.
1: when I
2: saw this episode and started writing these notes, it's like there's no easy answer to this because yeah. there are there are there are both uh, exceptions to the rules that we're putting out. You know, no one has the right to tell somebody how to be happy. But at the same time, though, at least in this circumstance, there are rules set in place so that other lives have the ability to thrive and not be weighed down by past experiences. You know, they're not using kind of like the experience of their own past to influence themselves. They're using the experience of other lifetimes to experience, uh, to, to influence their experiences. And I think that's a very, obviously, it's a very fine line to debate, but if, if, for example, I basically borrowed somebody else's memories and said, okay, you know what? My life's okay, but your life is better because I know your memories, so I'm going to use your life as a template. But what does that do to the originality of me? What does that leave me?
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, but remember, even Jadzia and Lenara realized that they had more in common than and Sinalani. True.
2: And and if it was just you know? them, yeah. th- that's the story that I'm more interested in. Because mm-hmm. their relationship is coming honestly and organically. They're both scientists. They're both attracted to each other. I get that. But mm-hmm. now you compound that relationship with the, the weight, the gravitas of what happened with this, un, not unrequited love, but this, the catastrophe that happened with Tarius and him basically saying, I got a second chance to apologize. It's kind of like when Curzon took over Jadzia's body. It's like, I got another chance at being Curzon you know, right. or, or took over Odo's body. Why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I take that? But it's not right. You had your shot, right?
0: You got to let well, somebody else live that shot. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, but maybe that is the shot to live, you know, again, that it, it, it seems presumptuous of me for, uh, the greater trill society to say, the whole point here is to live experiences that nobody else can live mm-hmm. to go out and, and be everything that you can be, uh, Except for this, except for these emotions that are profound and powerful and important and have everything to do with family and connection. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's a, it's a, that seems... yeah, tough. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a, yeah, that's yeah, a
2: very seems... tough point. And, and why this episode is so darn good.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Awfully good. Yeah, you know, I, I do want to talk about the the same-sex kiss in a different context here mm-hmm. because we, we talked about a little bit earlier just in, like, how it was handled for the episode. Um, and just to go back to something that we mentioned before, yeah, it was a big deal at the time, and it's still a big deal today, though maybe not as big a deal. We kind of dealt with the flip side of this in The Next Generation, The Host, in season four, where Beverly met a trill who she fell in love with but then when that trill was moved to a female body couldn't go on and crusher couldn't fall for that same trill uh and a female host and and we understood that on our show on mission log that it wasn't about prejudice it was about preference everybody's entitled to their preference and and what you know how they see themselves and what they look for in a partner Dax and Khan, I think, present this wonderful opportunity to present this, you know, passionate, equal, complex relationship where it truly is about the meeting of two personalities rather than two bodies. Uh, I thought that remains one of the strengths of this episode Um, and in an era where we are attempting to be more sensitive and understanding, I hope. Um, about a range of non-binary genders and orientations, Uh, it really boils down to, uh, to coin a phrase, it's what's inside that counts. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that was uh, clearly something that they had in mind in structuring this episode the way that they did. It was interesting to me to go back and read so many comments from the cast and crew saying, well, you know, it's not about a same-sex kiss. It's not about a lesbian couple. And they're right. It's about Trill. It's about what they do. Uh But then we have the genius of Star Trek and the the genius of using the metaphor of science fiction to reflect things that we deal with in the real world, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought, handled very nicely to uh to get that message across
2: you know i remember when and i wasn't watching deep space nine in earnest when this came out but i do remember that most of the trade magazines that i read at the time you know like starlog and cinefantastique and fangoria Mm -hmm. and uh, even uh, star trek communicator and then of course you have entertainment tonight and all of the of the trade shows that covered Mm -hmm. the spectacle of pop culture at the time And I remember that the one thing that they focused on and branded this particular scene in this episode was the lesbian kiss. Yeah. And I didn't really pay it much attention because I'm like, oh, okay. It's, you know, it's like I'm in college. I'm thinking progressively. I'm like, oh, okay, a lesbian kiss. Why wouldn't they have that on TV? Right? Mm -hmm. They had that with LA Law. They had it with Roseanne. Why not Star Trek? Especially why not Star Trek? Right, right. But then when you rewatch this episode and you really look at like you pointed out, the root cause of how this came to be, it has absolutely nothing to do with the, the impetus of a same-sex relationship, even though the kiss is done by two females. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what happened with Tarias and Nalani. It's this longing that they had for each other that they weren't ever, they didn't think they were able to, to find again, almost kind of um, soulmates
0: in a way. Well, it's a little bit of Star Trek sort of getting to have its cake and eat it, too. Yeah. By saying, we're not doing a same-sex love story, but by the way, we are (laughs) because this is a TV show. And we have two women cast in these roles, so we're playing it like that. That's how we're playing it. But we're getting across the message that that is irrelevant. Mm Mm-hmm. We're actually making a case here to say it's about the personalities involved, you know. And and yeah, you you could say uh, I I I don't think it's a great argument, but you could make an argument to say like, well, but it, it was the the spirits of, or the you know the personalities of this heterosexual couple, you know, Tarraus and Nilani regardless, you know, it, it's all science fiction, it's all fake, but where we land in this is that here you have a TV production in 1995 telling what I think is this just lovely, heartfelt story of two people finding each other, but being told, you can't.
2: Yeah, and the, the optics on this are not to be summarily ignored. Obviously, yeah, the optics yeah. on this are... You know, two women and two very attractive, gorgeous women, mm-hmm. right, in this scene together. And, like, and this is why I brought up what I brought up earlier in Observations. If this scene was done with Terry, you know, and we know her character now that we're in the fourth season, mm-hmm. and somebody who wasn't nearly as attractive as Susanna Thompson, would you be focusing more on the fact that it was part of the story as opposed to— and I, I want to say this crudely because this is the way I felt that people were, were— receiving this at the time, two yeah. really hot women making out on TV. Yeah. yeah. Right? Which is, again, the what the perception was in the media. You know, because that's all they wanted to cover. They didn't want to cover the fact that there are these, you know, life lo- lifetime long souls in these alien bodies that are trying to find the love that they lost, were robbed of because of a tragic accident. No. That's never discussed. It's just that, look, Star Trek is putting on a lesbian kiss in their show, Way to Get With the Time, Star Trek. But that's not fair. <laughs> that's not what yeah. it was. I mean, that's what people made it to be.
0: Yeah, I, but you know what? As a wise Star Trek writer producer said about a later Star Trek show, um, when the press covers that and that's all they cover, embrace the controversy. And embrace this is- the controversy. You take it, and then you write a great character and a great moment, and you just keep forging ahead.
2: And this was before the internet. Oh my
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even I can't even imagine can't, if this broke yeah. on yeah. you know when
2: when social media would have taken yeah. hold of it. Wow.
1: I want your love and I want your revenge. You and me could write a bad romance. Oh 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 oh. I want your love and all your past lives revenge. You and me could write a bad romance. Whoa, oh, 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 caught in a trill romance.
2: So suffice it to say, John, that this is the feel-good episode of the summer. Uh, <laughs> I'm still,
0: I'm sorry, I need a <laughs> tissue. Uh, sorry.
2: I mean, all, all kidding. Yeah, those are uh, tears of joy. Yes. Not tears of sadness. Or, no, but all kidding aside, though, uh, I think what Rejoin has really delivered for us is an episode that has so much depth and so much complexity. And on the surface, it can be interpreted one way, but at the very heart of this, it is what Star Trek does best. It's giving us a very complex moral issue and disguising it in the realm of science fiction narrative. So as we do in Mission Log and holding the traditions of our show, does the episode hold up?
0: I, yeah, I mean, it's memorable. Uh, it, it does hold up. But, you know, it's kind of funny. I mostly forgot about the plot itself <laughs> and and really just focused on the characters. But, I, I mean, look, the plot is purely a contrivance just to get them together. And normally that would bother me. But in this case, um, e- even the bit with walking down the force field, which I just think is a terrible looking effect. And like you said, pro- probably look good on paper, but just not in execution. If you ask me about that scene, I probably will have forgotten about it a year from now, I or I definitely will have forgotten what episode it was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a good thing because it speaks to the strength of the emotional story here. To me, when I think about this story, I'm just going to think about the love story. And that, that speaks to the strength of the script, to the actors, and what a great performance they turned in. Um, there are weird directorial choices, uh, as we mentioned, that shot going into ops, that shot of Z combadge badge before going to the reception, you know, I, that was just, it was not handled right. Um, but regardless, the, those are minor things that, like I said, I will have forgotten sometime from now. I really love this episode. And and I happen to really like where it lands in the series. It, well, you just mentioned it, Norman. You know, we we needed to learn a lot about Dax and how the trill work for this to have as much impact as it did, or it could have just felt like a stunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they didn't go that route at all. I hate to see the status quo win when it's for the convenience of someone else's delicate sensibilities. I hate to see individuals prevented from expressing themselves because of tradition. Still, I love a solid, earned, tragic ending. And they earned this one. They really did. Fantastic. And I love that it also gives us something to talk about. So that this works in so many ways, despite its little problems here and there. Uh, how about you?
2: I agree with everything that you said. And, you know, I can forego kind of like the secondary B plot, if you even want to call it that. You know, the it was just kind of like a vehicle to get Lenara and Jadzia working together in the same room in close quarters and kind of keeping them pushing the walls, you know, behind them mm-hmm. further and further and further and further forward so that they eventually would have this catalyst to bring them together. And the thing is what I love about Star Trek episodes is that the episode for me doesn't end there when when a star trek episode is successful for me it continues to make me ask questions because my feelings on the episode are unresolved because as a as a person who i believe is still evolving i'm not quite fully baked yet
0: Mm -hmm.
2: my perception of the of the points that are being raised here are changing over time whether it's in a day a week month year 10 years Mm -hmm. So, what I come up uh, with, or what I come away with in this episode, my my first big question is is, is true love truly blind, or is it blinding? Hmm. because I believe that there's a a question of principle versus obligation, and this is the discussion that you and I had earlier yeah the the principle or obligation versus two joint trill and the responsibility that they pledged not only to themselves as the hosts, but to the hosts of the symbiont of this culture. And what do they hold in terms of the obligation? You know, what do they hold most dear? The obligation that they gave to the joining of themselves to these trail or the obligation to their own happiness. I mean that that's a that's a very dynamic and very poignant part of their their choice that they have to make at the end, the, the earned choice that you were talking about. But do Jadzia and Lenara have their own feelings pushed aside so that these two other symbionts' needs are met first and the needs of Trill society? Mm-hmm. So, like I said, whose rights in this episode come to the forefront? Whose rights are protected first and why? And does that make sense? Like you said, just because society says that it's supposed to be this way doesn't necessarily mean that it's so. I don't think any society has the right to impinge upon a sentient being's shot at happiness, even if they get it a second time around, which brings me to my second (laughs) point. (laughs) So what happens when you have the opportunity of a second chance? Because in this case, the Trill do get a chance of immortality. If their host bodies are, that live a long time and then the Trill gets put into another younger host body that lives a long time, seven, eight, nine generations of experiences and, and emotion and knowledge and intelligence and memory. But is that supposed to fold back on itself? If it folds back on itself, are you experiencing something new? Or if it folds back on itself in the case of Taris and Alani, are you just continuing something from the past that maybe shouldn't have continued? Based on fate, based on uh, uh, you know circumstance, and let somebody else's life experience continue from that point on. In that case, it would have been the other host symbionts. So, what do you risk? Who's right? Do you put forward, and at what cost? And whose cost? These are questions that I feel that can't be answered because we're answering it or we're looking at these questions from our own singular experience that changes from year to year to year. And I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. And I don't think that anyone out there has an answer to that, which makes this episode so good.
0: Right. Well, it, you know, when it comes to the message and what message are we supposed to walk away with, or, or maybe what did they give us that was the unintended message, I, for me it was pretty easy to boil down. And there there are more, but I, I'll leave it with uh, with this, that... You can't let your personal life get in the way of your job and your obligations. I think that Jedzia and nilani both, or, or Lenara, <laughs> both walk away with that. At the same time, you can't let your job and your obligations get in the way of your personal life. And how dare anyone else decide what that should look like for the good of society or for the good of the individual. So... There, there's your conundrum. <laughs> what, mm-hmm. else, what else in terms of messages here?
2: Well, for me, I think the highest stakes in this episode have to do with immortality because it's such a powerful concept. And again, I mentioned this before, Highlander, the series, is one of my favorite fandoms of all time. And that series tackled a very similar theme. When Immortals are faced with the mortal deaths of their loved ones, those who are not immortal, like their family and their friends, lovers, wives, uh, adopted children because they can't have children themselves. Is the gift of immortality, knowing that everyone around you will eventually die truly a gift? It's that great queen lyric from Who Wants to Live Mm -hmm. Forever? Who wants to live forever if love must die? And what's at stake here if Jadzia and Lenara forsake their vows of being joined Trill? Exile and death, but at the sake of their own happiness. Mm-hmm. So is true love worth the price of immortality? And what does that immortality bring you in the end? Does it bring you true happiness because you extend all of this life experience? Or because you're doing that, you're saying goodbye to Benjamin and and Bashir and Worf. They're eventually going to pass before you because your memories are going to live on in somebody else's body. Yeah. So... Where is the gift in that? Is it truly a gift? And if you forsake that, are you going to live your best life? I can't answer that. But that's what this message means to me in this episode.
0: Well, I'll let you know in 500 years. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Roddenberry Podcast Network is at podcast.roddenberry.com. Over there, you'll find all of our shows. Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the
2: next mission log, Starship Down.
1: Just one more before we deactivate the mixed aid program. The trill is gone, baby. The trill is gone away from me, although I'll still live on, but so lonely I'll be. End transmission.